to talk about the five solas of the Reformation. And uh, we started with sola scriptura last week. Uh, sola scriptura simply means scripture alone. And it's one of the five solas of the Reformation. The five solas are simply five Latin phrases that developed and emerged out of the Protestant Reformation. And the Reformers embraced these five phrases that stood in direct contrast to the unbiblical teaching that they were receiving from the Roman Catholic Church. And they became, for the church in that day, guardrails, if you were, for, if you will, for staying true to what true Christian orthodoxy and teaching is. And so like a confession or a creed, um, these five phrases were committed to memory and they were used like a filter to help even the common people to know whether or not the teaching that they were receiving at the hand of the priests and other clergy members was truth or not. And so as, as people would begin to preach uh, at the beginnings of the Reformation and on throughout uh, the many generations that have passed since then, these five Latin phrases, these five solas, have become a way for the church to listen to the preaching of the Word of God and to know whether or not someone is within the pale of orthodoxy. They still continue to serve us today, and they are clear statements on the Bible's authority and our only hope for salvation and God's purpose for redemptive history. And so the five solas are sola scriptura, which is scripture alone, sola fide, which is faith alone, solas Christus, which is Christ alone, sola gratia, which is grace alone, and soli deo gloria, which is to the glory of God alone. And so both in our individual study of the Word of God, in our corporate worship, uh, these five solas can still act as guardrails for us to remain centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ, because truly that's what it summarizes for us, that justification before God is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, and all of this is revealed to us how? Through Scripture alone. Amen. And so each one of these different solas is reliant upon the others, and they give a great overarching view of what our faith is based on and where it ultimately comes from. The God of Scripture who for the sake of His glory redeems a people by His grace, allowing justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And again, all of this is revealed through the authority of Scripture alone. And so last week we started in 2 Timothy 3. I told you a little bit of background history uh, to the Reformation. We talked about Martin Luther, and uh, I got into the car later that day, and my wife, Antoinette, was like, so? And I'm like, yes? And she's like, so what happened to Martin Luther? And I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, you never told us like what happened to Martin Luther. And I was like waiting for it. And I was like, oh, well, you have to wait till next week. And she's like, whatever. And so honestly, I just forgot to give you the end of the story. So let me give you the end of the story. Uh, at the Diet of Worms, uh, Luther was actually condemned. He gave his famous statement that unless he was convinced 
by Scripture. Uh, he would not go against his conscience because to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. And then he said, here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. And, you know, you would think everyone, I mean, all of us just want to stand up, slow 80s clap, and, and you know, the, the movie ends, right, with, with Luther being sort of uh, justified in that. And that's not what happened. He was actually condemned. Uh, but because of the nature of his popularity in that day, uh, they decided to let him go home as had been prearranged safely, that he was uh, granted safe passage to the diet and safe passage from the diet. Uh, there are some rumors of legend that along the way there were some who tried to come and kill him, uh, but he escaped and eventually lived out the rest of his life in Germany, spending some time running from uh, the Roman Empire, uh, being secreted away and hidden for some time, but then ultimately openly living again because the rise of Protestantism was so great that Luther was basically protected just because uh, the Roman Empire was afraid of the riot of the local people. Uh, but essentially, according to the Catholic Church, Luther, at his excommunication, became a non-person. And as a non-person, anybody would have been able to kill him without any ramifications legally from anybody. And, and so he lived out his days kind of with that threat over his life, uh, but then ultimately uh, died about a little over 20 years later. But it's an interesting story to watch what happened after that, the, the, the Bible being translated into German and, and all of the things that went along with that and the, the Protestant Reformation then spreading throughout all of Europe at that time. And it's just an awesome testimony to the goodness of God and his grace that at specific moments in history, God will come in and move through his people to protect his word and the church. And so we said last week that even through the Middle Ages, through the Dark Ages, there was always a remnant of God's church, of the Bride of Christ, that was present, who is committed to the scriptures and who is committed to the true gospel that is pertained in them, that it is by grace, through faith in Christ alone, that men are saved. Amen? So we did that. And then I just also want to make a quick correction. I misspoke last week. I said that Wycliffe... Uh, translated his English Bible from the Greek Vulgate. There's no such thing. It was the Latin Vulgate. Even as I said it last week, I was like, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. And it just bothered me all week. And so I had to correct that. So it was the Latin Vulgate. All right. So let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We started here last week as Paul tells Timothy, this young pastor of the church in Ephesus, that there would be coming a day when false teachers would rise up and that during those times of difficulty, when people were lovers of self and pleasure rather than lovers of God, uh, when they would be weak, they would be led astray and that they would be in opposition to the truth. Not just that they wouldn't listen to the truth, but they would literally rise up in opposition to the truth. They were corrupted and I would say that we are again in that type of a day. And so Paul gives some instruction to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, uh, verse 16 is where we will start this morning. And he says concerning scripture, 
that it is God-breathed, literally in the Greek, theonostos, that it is God-breathed. Some of our translations have inspired, and I just want to challenge that a little bit, that it is so much more than simply inspired. It is literally God-breathed. It is breathed out by God. So look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, verses 16 and 17. And it says this, it says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. So it's not merely inspired, but literally the words of Scripture are the very words of God breathed out by God. And this means that Scripture carries authority, not because I'm here telling you this book is our authority, not because church leaders throughout history have said this is the authority, but this book is our authority because of where It comes from. And where does it come from? It comes from God himself. It came from God by the Holy Spirit. And so while the book of the Bible is not merely a book with many chapters, but more like a library filled with many books, with many different authors and many different genres, it ultimately is one book that comes to us from God and it carries with it one overarching story of redemption, the Missio Dei, what God has been doing from the beginning of time through into the completion of time, even into the future. And so we believe that every word of Scripture is authoritative in our lives because we believe that it was breathed out by God, and so it contains not just the words of men, but it contains the very words of God, God's words. It's His words that He used men To write. Why? Because God works through means. And so, because of that, Paul knows that Timothy should have confidence when he comes to the Word of God, that he should have confidence when he reads it, that he should have confidence when he preaches it, he should have confidence when he uses it to instruct the people in the church of Ephesus. And we too should also have confidence to do what he's about to tell Timothy to do. In 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, if you look at that quickly. He says, I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. That's his instruction. Preach the word. And then he says, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So essentially, he he says to Timothy, all of Scripture is breathed out by God. And so that should fill Timothy with confidence. And in that confidence, he says to Timothy, preach the word. Preach the word, preach the word, preach the word, is essentially what he could have said. But instead he says, in season and out of season. And essentially what that means is that he must be ready always to preach the word. 
and that there is never a season in time that's going to come within the church of Ephesus that it wouldn't be a season to preach the word, right? We know the song, it actually comes from scripture for every season, turn, 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 right? There's a, there's a time for everything. Well, there's a time for everything, but every time is a time for the preaching of the word of God. Amen. It is good for every season. Not only good for every season, it is needed in every season of life. And we should never, ever, ever do without it. And so Paul encourages Timothy. He says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. But then what does he say to do with that word? He says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. But if you listen to the preaching today throughout most of the pulpits, at least in North America, if not throughout the world, most of what you're going to hear from those pulpits has very little to do with the first two of those statements from Paul. He doesn't lead with encouragement. He leaves with what? Reproof. And he still doesn't get to encouragement right away. Then he says, rebuke. And then he gets to exhort. He says the reason for this, and notice he does say with complete patience and teaching. So that doesn't mean that the preacher should just get up and badger the sheep every week and reprove and rebuke and reprove and rebuke and say you're all worthless and you can't do anything and why can't you get anything right? Uh, most importantly, preachers need to understand that, that we are also sheep, that we smell like sheep and we can't do anything right in our own power either. I'll say amen to myself because if you can't say amen, you have to say ouch and I don't want to do that in front of you. Okay, ouch. It hurts, okay? Ouch. I need it as well. And so he says to do that with complete patience and teaching, knowing that, that God knows our frame. He knows our stature. He knows that as we sing so many times that we are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. And so he says, yes, reprove, rebuke, exhort, but do it with complete patience and with teaching. Right? Teaching carries with it a connotation of repetitiveness. Repetition is the price of knowledge, one of my friends likes to say. And so that means that we need to hear it over and over and over again. And as we hear it over and over and over again, there comes a time where finally we're like, oh yeah, that's what we're supposed to do. That's what the word of God says. But why should we do this? Paul answers that rhetorical question in verse number three. He says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. And we've already experienced that somewhat ourselves as we've been committed to the teaching of Scripture. There have been some that have said, you know what, I, I don't know that I can quite handle that. And so I need to go somewhere else where the preaching is a little more encouraging to me. And so we need to understand that we live in a time where some people are not going to endure sound teaching. For the time is coming, verse 3 continues, 
but they will have itching ears and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Let me tell you something. This isn't from the Bible. This is just common sense. It starts in the Bible and then it carries on. The truth will set you free. But first it's going to tick you off. Right? You want to make someone mad, tell them what to do. But you really want to tick someone off, tell them the truth of what the Bible says, that there's absolutely nothing that you can do. And everything is reliant upon God and what he has done for you in Christ Jesus. As, as human beings, we want a list of things to do. We want the checklist. Tell us what to do. We'll do it. We are the Israelites in the wilderness saying, you gave us the word. Can you do it? Can you do the law? Yes, we will do it and we will live. But the reality is what? We cannot. We need the doing of another. We need an alien righteousness. We need the righteousness of Christ Jesus. And so some people will be tickled in their itching ears by people who will tell them, hey, yeah, you can do it. Come, let's, let's show you how to do it. Here's five steps to this and seven steps to that. And here's the one key to unlocking the kingdom of God for you in your life. And you never have to worry about anything anymore. And I've got words for that that I can't say from the pulpit this morning. It is, I'll use Paul's words in relation to his own righteousness. That teaching is scubala. And go have fun with that. It says that they will turn away from listening to the truth and they will wander off into myths. But he says to Timothy, as for you, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering, do the work of an evangelist, which is essentially him saying again, preach the word, fulfill your ministry. And so Paul challenges young Timothy and he says, preach the word, preach the word, not just whenever he wants to, but the very message of the gospel that Paul is preaching, that is Jesus, as seen as the fulfillment of all things in scripture, Paul says to Timothy, preach that word, for faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And Paul says to do it, not only when it's convenient, but when it's not convenient, which also means that Timothy has to be ready to do that. It means that he has to, as Paul will say to him later, study to show himself approved so that he can be ready to preach in season and out of season. That is what readiness is all about. In other words, it's a full-time job, bro. And what does he say? Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So just as a reminder, a reprove is kind of that kind of like putting that hand covering someone's mouth, like just saying, shh, 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 just, just, this is what you're doing, S stop, right? Just, just, shh, shh, okay? That's, that's a reprove. You're, you're, you're off the rails a little bit. You're not totally getting off into crazy town, but you're, you're on your way there, right? And if the sign says crazy town, 
turn around and come back home, okay? Like, like that's a reprove. It's like you're not, you're not totally out there, but you're getting there. So come back home. Come back within the boundaries of what is true doctrine. It's a censoring of someone. It's usually, hopefully, done in more of a private situation. A rebuke is an actual reprimand. It's when someone is actually gone outside of their way. They're, they're not just on their way, they're already there. And, and in our teaching, we have to come along and we have to rebuke. And sometimes this has to be done publicly, but as often as possible, we try to do it privately as well because love covers a multitude of sin. And so an actual reprimand or a disciplinary action is sometimes needed in a person's life. Now, reproving and rebuking is also done publicly from the pulpit, where even in our teaching, we will address certain things. Uh, you have heard this in the last several weeks, even if you didn't know it. There are times through conversations with different people, as people bring up issues within the church, that I will address those things from the teaching of the word. A few weeks ago, we went to 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. And we see here that Paul says that if we want to be complete, equipped for every good work, we need to receive all of Scripture. And there uh, was rumor of those within the church who were ignoring large parts of Scripture. And so you heard me from the pulpit say, stop that. That's a reprove. It's a rebuke from the pulpit to say, stop that. Quit ignoring the Old Testament. Receive the whole Bible, the whole counsel of God, and be equipped and complete for every good work. And yes, there is exhortation, the part we all love, the encouragement that comes from the word of God. And this is the one we all want. It's the pat on the back, the support, the affirmation that you are headed in the right direction. But hear me, there is possibly more affirmation in a reprove and a rebuke received by God through his word than there is in an exhortation that you're on the right path. Why? Because the Bible says that the Lord disciplines those he loves. The Lord disciplines those he loves. And so when you're sitting under the teaching of the word and the Holy Spirit pricks your heart and says, hey, that's what I've been telling you about. Receive that correction from the Lord through his word. Receive that rebuke and that reprove and receive it as a grace to you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a good father. If you didn't receive that, then that would mean something entirely different. And so when you sit under the preaching of the word and you're like, man, I'm just, I feel like it just hurt. Praise God. Praise God. He loves you. He loves you and he's not willing to allow you to continue in that way, but he's bringing his word and by his Holy Spirit, he's convicting your heart. Listen and receive and praise him and thank him for his love and discipline towards you. And yes, there is exhortation and encouragement to continue to walk towards Christ and in submission to scripture but it also sometimes comes as gentle correction and it can also carry the same disapproval as a reproval or rebuke. So why does all this need to be done? 
It needs to be done because there is coming a time when people will not endure sound teaching. And so the reformers, they, they saw this and they looked at this and they saw it happening in their day and we see it happening in our day. And so we say, what is sound teaching? How do we know if something is sound teaching? And that's where the reformers answered this question by submitting to sola scriptura. They said the way that we're going to know whether or not something is sound teaching is whether or not it actually comes from the Bible. Because the word of God was not in the people's common tongue, the priests and the clergymen, the, the magisterium and all the cardinals and the bishops, they were saying whatever they wanted to say. And they began to teach things that filled their pockets and filled the coffers. And they were saying things like every time a, uh, a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Right? They were teaching the people that every time they gave, that they were releasing their unsaved family members from hell. Is that from the word of God? No. But for a fearful people living in a fearful time who are afraid of purgatory and hell, it sounds good. And so what do they do? They scrape together whatever they have and they put it in the, the coffers so that they can earn for themselves and for their family members' indulgences. Um, there's a great, more modern movie about Martin Luther. I'd encourage you to go watch it. And it's, it's, it's a great, well-done movie with the guy from Shakespeare in Love. So it's, you know, pretty good. Go watch it. It's on YouTube for free. Um, it's, it's a great opportunity to see the story of the things that, that, that he went through. And even as he journeyed to Rome before the Reformation, and his heart was just pricked by the promiscuity of the church in their teaching and in their practice and what they were calling people to. But see in that the parallel in our own day. I have been in places um, around the world where pastors have made a copy of a picture of their family and offered it for sale to their church members who were living in impoverished conditions for extreme amounts of money and said that if they would just buy this picture and hang it in their house, that they would receive the blessing of God. I have been in places in America, where preachers have said to people that if they want to receive the blessing of God, that even though they are in impoverished conditions, wallowing in debt and cannot pay their bills, that if they will just sow some kind of seed offering into the ministry of the church, that God will bless them. And that is damnable and it is a teaching that tickles the ears why because it says there's a way that I can do something to get out of my mess rather than coming alongside of those people and saying Christ
Christ. Came not to be served, but to serve. We put people under bondage instead of proclaiming the opening of prison doors and the releasing of captives and the opening of the eyes of the blind. God help us. And God help the church. So sound teaching is teaching that is grounded in and submitted to Scripture alone. And God in His grace has gifted the body of Christ with teachers. But those teachers are in authority, but they are not the ultimate authority. The Word of God is. So all teachers, preachers, and evangelists must be pitted against the Scriptures and like Timothy, we, as those preachers, are called to faithfully use the Word of God in this way. To reprove, to rebuke, and to exhort. We do that in our preaching from the pulpit. We do it in private counsel with members of the, of the family, in letters and in emails, and even on Facebook posts if we have to. The Word of God is useful for us and to us, not just because it is a good book but because it is the very word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it is piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Remember that we often tell each other that we cannot judge the thought and the intent of the heart for each other. But can I tell you what can judge the thought and intent of your heart? The Word of God. And the Word of God is holy and it is perfect. And it is useful to us as a mirror reflecting the true, perfect, holy character of God. But it is also a mirror reflecting to us our own inability to hold up to that standard of God's perfection and holiness. It unveils our nakedness, if you will, and it makes us undone so that the only way that we can be done up again is through the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ. And so as it pertains to scriptures, we could say this, that we accept the Bible, including 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament as the written Word of God, that the Bible is an essential and infallible record of God's self-disclosure to mankind. Remember, how do we learn about God? He reveals himself. And how does God reveal himself? Through nature and through his word, which is the Bible. It's God's self-disclosure to mankind. The words of scripture lead us to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ and being given by God, the scriptures are both fully and verbally breathed out by him. Therefore, as originally given, the Bible is free of error in all of its teaching. Now, can we make a recognition? 
are all the translations of the original Bible without error. No. Our translations, they do have errors. But those errors are so minuscule in comparison to the overarching teaching of the Word of God that we can be absolutely certain that when it comes to the true meaning of the Word of God, that even in our more accurate English translations today, that we can be confident that we have and hold and hear and read the Word of God. And I'd encourage you to go and listen to some debates online about textual criticism and hear um, some scholars like Dr. James White and others, Carl Truman and others, who, who have spent many years giving themselves to the study of textual criticism and how we have received the transmission of the Word of God from the beginning until today. It's amazing. It will strengthen your faith and your confidence in the Word of God. We believe that all believers are exhorted to study the Scriptures and diligently apply them to their lives. The Scriptures are the authoritative and normative rule and guide of all of Christian life, practice, and doctrine. They are totally sufficient and must not be added to, superseded, or changed by later tradition, extra-biblical revelation, worldly wisdom, and every doctrinal formation, whether of creed, confession, or theology, must be put to the test of the full counsel of the Word of God as given to us in Holy Scripture. Amen? So the question of sola scriptura is fundamentally a question of authority. And we say that the authority rests with Scripture. Amen? And so the authority of the church and its elders is established because of the authority of Scripture, but it is in submission to Scripture and not over it, as was the heir of the Roman Catholic Church during the Dark Ages. And so this means, like Timothy, that we have to rightly divide the word of truth. And when it comes to interpreting Scripture, we are not allowed to interpret Scripture however we like. Okay, I, I grew up going through AP English classes. And one of the things about AP English classes is all we did was read books and write essays, right? The reason I was in AP English was not because I was smart. It was because I begged my teacher not to put me in the other English class because I hate grammar. I cannot diagram a sentence to save my life. And so I found out that in AP English, all you have to do is read books and write essays. I can do that. And so I begged, and by the mercy of God, that's how I got into that class. And so here's what the crazy thing was. We all would read the same book, and we would all write different essays, and we would all come to different conclusions about what the book was really about. And then my teacher would sit in front of the class and nod and smile and say, yes. Right? I think it's about this, and I think it's about that, which is totally opposed to what that other person said. And my teacher would just go, yes. Right? And the problem is that humanistic approach to literature, which has seeped into the church, has caused a situation where sometimes preachers get into the Word of God and they say, well, I know that 
history has said and, and all these dead guys who have been accepted for over a thousand years have said, but I think that I finally figured it out and I actually think that this really means blah, 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 blah. That's not okay. It's not okay for us to do that and it is not okay for us to come to Scripture and act like we can just read whatever meaning into Scripture that we want to read into Scripture. That also means that you can't just read whatever meaning into Scripture, that you want to read whatever into Scripture. We cannot do that. We are not allowed to interpret Scripture however we like or to make stuff up or to get special revelations from God that are not first and foremost already revealed in His Word. And so when it comes to Scripture, there are rules to interpretation. And so we have to ask the question, but what about when Scripture is difficult to interpret? What then? And so that speaks to the clarity of Scripture, what theologians call the doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture, and I'm probably only going to say that once. Essentially, that word means clarity, clearness. And so the question that that doctrine asks and answers is, is Scripture clear? And the answer fundamentally is yes, and abundantly so. Now, does that mean that there are not portions of Scripture that are more obscure than others? No, that's not what that means. There are passages of Scripture that are more difficult to understand than others. But fundamentally, the message of Scripture, the message of gospel, which, of the gospel, which is essential for salvation, is clear and it is easy to understand. And so we can with confidence say that Scripture is clear, but we must not confuse clarity with simplicity. Do you follow that? We must not confuse clarity with simplicity. Some texts of the Bible are of the utmost more difficult to understand than others. But Scripture is clear, but it is not always simply so. And when this is the case, here is some of what we ought to do. Okay? Number one, we must recognize that while Scripture is clear, it sometimes takes some work and time to get to its clear meaning. Okay? So what that means is every time you open the Word of God and you just read it first, first pass over this passage, you are not necessarily going to go, oh yeah, of course that's what it means. Right? Sometimes it's going to take a little bit of work. Sometimes it's going to take a little bit of time. And so you have to go back over it. You have to read it carefully, meditate on it, look at what was written before that, look at what's written after that, and take some time and digest. And you will not understand every text at first glance and without some effort, okay? Which leads into number two, that we must always allow Scripture to interpret Scripture for us. And so what one of the rules of interpretation is, is that when we come to a fundamentally more difficult passage of Scripture to understand, 
the way that we interpret that scripture is by going to the other more easy to understand scriptures that are more simple in their clarity to help us interpret what that more difficult portion of scripture means. And why can we do that? Because scripture does not actually contradict itself. There may be times at first glance without some work that it seems like, is this contradicting itself? But if we will take some time, if we will go back to the more simple to understand passages and use them as a rule of thumb to interpret the rest, we will find that there is actual unity among all of the scriptures. And so we must allow scripture to interpret scripture for us. And this means that over time, if you keep reading and keep listening, you will begin to see the interconnected parts of Scripture as well as the overarching story, which is the story of redemption throughout the whole Bible through Jesus Christ. And so here's what this means. When you come to the Word of God in your own personal study, even when I come to the Word of God to to study to preach the Word of God, I sometimes err in this, but I know that there's no way that I am going to plumb the absolute depths of every passage of Scripture in this go-around, right? And so what I have to recognize is that this is for this go-around, right? Which means what? There should be more. Right? If you've read through the Bible once and you're like, yeah, finish that, done. <laughs> and you haven't picked it up again, you have missed everything. You've missed everything. How, let me ask you this. How many times have you watched a movie for the second time and you missed something in that movie? And you're like, whoa, what? I didn't even notice that before. Or one of your favorite books and you've gone back and you've read it again and you missed stuff in your favorite book. How much more do you think that that happens in Scripture and with the Word of God? For all of our lifetime, we will never, ever, ever plumb the depths of every passage of Scripture in the Bible. And every time we come back to it, there will be more life and more of God's character and more of the Lord's grace extended to us that we will receive when we keep coming back to it. One of the reasons that we have the reading plan that we do is because we can get through the Bible in a year. But here's the hope. Next year, we'll do it again. And the next year, we'll do it again. And we'll keep coming back again and again and again and again. And I know that that is a longer view of receiving Scripture. That sometimes it means that you've got to kind of go, okay, well, this part really stood out to me this time. But guess what? Next year, you're going to circle back there again, and God's going to do a new thing in that for you. And you're going to receive something even deeper, something even more. And over time, if you will keep reading and if you will keep listening. And so what I'm saying is don't get hung up. If you get to a part that is more difficult to understand, just go, oh, I can't understand it. Just forget it. Don't do that. Keep reading. Make a note. I don't understand this. And I'm going to tell you what else to do in a minute. I don't understand this. And keep reading. Okay? 
And it may be further down the way that something will connect and you go, oh, that, that, oh, I get it. That's what that is, okay? I don't know if you guys like are that demonstrative when you read the Bible, but I actually do that sometimes. Sometimes I'll just be like throwing things and cursing sometimes. I don't know. Seriously, pray for me. Okay. <laughs> Number three. Because we must use Scripture to interpret Scripture, it means that we must follow the rules of interpretation. And that most often has to do with context, 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 context. Right? Real estate is location, 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 location. Scripture interpretation is context, 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 context. And so we have to look at the context, the genre, the, and the purpose of the original writing. Who wrote it, and when, and to whom, and why, and in what way. So much bad teaching today is a result of ignoring context. Remember, uh, D.A. Carson's dad used to tell him that a text without a context will become a pretext for a proof text, right? Do you follow that? A text without a context will become a pretext for a proof text. And so context is vitally, vitally important. Who is writing and when and to whom and in what way and why, okay? Number four. Make use of the means given to you. Remember that God works through means. And God didn't redeem you and then send you off into the world by yourself, but rather he redeemed you and welcomed you into his family. And in his family there is structure, and in that structure there is leadership. And so make use of the means given to you. Make use of your brothers and sisters who are in this journey with you who are supposed to be reading the Bible also and start asking each other what you're reading in the Bible, right? And we've given you a plan. Hopefully most of you are reading the same thing. And we're not going to like whip you if you're reading something different, okay? We thought about it. Um, <laughs> But Brian helped bring some, you know, balance, and he said that's probably not a good idea. It's, it's kind of on the verge of legalism and, you know, grace and all that. So we're not going to whip anybody if they don't read that reading plan, but it's there for you. And, and how awesome would it be for you to ask someone, hey, did you read this in the Bible this week? And they're like, yeah, I actually read that. Hey, can we talk about it? Yes, and you can talk about it, Right? Whereas it's not as helpful when you go, hey, what are you reading in the Bible? And they say, well, this other thing that you're not reading. And then where does the conversation go? Oh, that's great for you. And I'm not saying it's all bad. I'm sure you got something great out of it. But now you're not on the same page. Are you with me? And so there's, 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 there's life in that where we can begin to discuss what we're reading in the Word of God together, right? There's four chapters a day. If you can't do all four chapters, do one or two or three. But read the Bible. Study the Bible. Talk to each other about it. Make use 
of the means given to you and the brothers and sisters who are on this journey with you, as well as the elders that God has placed over you to care for you and to watch over you, and by his word has tasked us with defending the body against false teaching. Okay? And so let me just say this. It is our great joy to walk through the scriptures with you. But there are also many other brothers and sisters who, like the great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 12, have gone on before us. And we live in a beautiful time and age where we can read the Bible this week with Martin Luther. Or we can read the Bible this week with John Calvin or with Cranmer. Or we can uh, read the Bible this week with, with saints who have gone on before us and who have written about their study of the Bible and their words have stood the test of time and they, they line up with orthodoxy and we can read the Bible with them. This, this is an incredible time that we live in. Make use of those things. Make use of commentaries. Invest in your reading of the Word of God and go get yourself a good, solid study Bible. Um, the two that I use most right now are the ESV study Bible and the Reformation study Bible. They're both great study Bibles. Go get a good study Bible in a good translation, which means a translation that is for as much as it can be a word-for-word -word translation as well as staying true to the meaning of the thought. Um, other translations, which are just kind of like loosey-goosey, this kind of means this, and let's make flowery language about it, those can be great for devotional life. Those can be great for reading something that, that, that is, is devotional and helps you Think about something in a, in a greater way, but really, 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 when you're studying the Word of God and you're trying to get to the true meaning of the Word of God, you need a good English word-for-word -word and meaning translation. Amen. All right. Go to these things. Now, hear me saying to you, go get these things. Use these things. And that is the difference between sola scriptura and what we would call Solo scriptura, okay? There's a difference between sola scriptura and solo scriptura. And we do not hold to solo scriptura because solo scriptura means throw all those books away, throw everything that all of the theologians in time past have written away, throw away Augustine, throw away all of these guys, just throw it away and Throw away all of the study notes. Don't get a study Bible and just get the words of the Bible. And if you really wanted to get persnickety about it, go learn Greek and Hebrew and only use a Greek and Hebrew Bible. Okay? That's solo scriptura. And that's not necessarily helpful for you. We believe in sola scriptura, which means that our authority is scripture alone, but we make use of the means that are at our fingertips to help us in our endeavor to understand scripture. Amen? All right, number five. This is most important. You must have the Holy Spirit living within you 
to truly understand the scriptures. You can pay attention to context. You can pay attention to all the literary interpretation rules when studying the Bible. But if you do not have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, then as 1 Corinthians 2 says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who, can, who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. And how do believers have the mind of Christ? Through the present work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. This does not mean that the person on the street cannot understand the English words that you are using when you share scripture or the gospel with them. That's not what it means, right? So it's not like you go to someone on the street and you're like, listen, the Bible says Jesus died on the cross for your sin. He was buried, rose again on the third day and was seen by many and then ascended to the Father. They're not going to go, wait, what a minute. As soon as you said Bible, I, I couldn't understand a word that you said. What can, that's not what that means. What it means is that the natural person is not able to discern those things in a spiritual sense, which means they cannot receive the word of God in a way that affects them inwardly, spiritually, but only receive the words outwardly and naturally. It means that apart from the Holy Spirit, people will not be able to spiritually discern the implications that Scripture has on them. And this was in our catechism last week in question 37. How does the Holy Spirit help us? The answer was the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, comforts us, guides us, gives us spiritual gifts and the desire to obey God, and He enables us to pray and to understand God's Word. This week's question was on prayer. What is prayer? Prayer is pouring out our hearts to God in praise, petition, confession of sin and thanksgiving. And so I would say this. As you are reading the word of God, as you are trying to submit yourself to scripture, make your petition to God every time you open his word that he would by his spirit enable you to understand it. When you open the word of God, pray, pray to a God who is real and who loves you, loves you so much that he gave this word to you. Pray and ask him by the Holy Spirit to help you to understand it. And then when he does and when you do, praise him for it. Praise him for it. Thank you. God, thank you for helping me to understand your word. So we must have the Holy Spirit and we must allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. This idea stems all the way back to Augustine and then before him into the New Testament. Because the apostles, what were they preaching? They were preaching the Old Testament with Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. 
And so even then, they're submitting themselves to the scripture that they had already been given, and they're allowing the things that happened in the life of Jesus and what he said to be interpreted by scripture. And so we should approach scripture with confidence that we can access its meaning and that God has something to say to us, both individually, in our own personal study, and corporately when we come to sit together under the teaching and the proclamation of the word of God. The early church fathers would have said something like this about that idea, that scripture is like a massive and beautiful lake that is shallow enough along the shoreline for children to play and deep enough at its center for an elephant to swim in. That's awesome. And we should with confidence come to scripture that way. That, that, that it is at its shoreline shallow enough for our kids to play in. That, that we shouldn't be afraid to give the word of God to our kids because we can with confidence know that its meaning is clear and that scripture has a clarity that is accessible even to them. That, that you should know that you don't need a seminary degree to read your Bible and understand it. You don't need to go to Bible college before you can read your Bible because God in his grace has given it to us in such a way that some theologians would say that God spoke to us in baby talk. In baby talk. We are able to take the difficult parts of Scripture and understand them in light of the easier parts. And this was the practice of our early church fathers and the reformers. There are more implications than I have time to go over today, but this is where I have to connect the dots. Suffice it to say, Scripture is clear, and we should not be afraid of it or fear that our children wouldn't be able to understand it. Scripture itself takes it for granted that they will be able to understand it when in the Old Testament, God instructs the people of Israel to teach their children the Word of God. Teach it to your children. Read it to your children and watch the eyes of their heart be opened by the Holy Spirit right before your own very natural eyes. Why is all this important again? It's important because as Paul says to Timothy in 4, 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, the time's coming when people will not endure sound teaching. And I want to say to you today that while it is easy to hear that and look outside the four walls here, we have to understand that he meant us as well that there are days when I don't endure sound teaching. There are days when you won't endure sound teaching. You will, by your flesh, be drawn away to the itching of your ears to hear things that tickle your ears and cause you to want to step away from sound teaching. Be on guard. This is why Paul would say to Timothy that he must keep watch over his doctrine and his purity so that he would not wander off into myths. This is very important. This is the real and present danger of our lives. And sola scriptura is the defense that we would submit to the ultimate authority of scripture alone. On what basis do you believe that? Let it be scripture alone. On what basis do you live that way? Let it be scripture alone. Let us submit to scripture 
alone. As a church, we are committed to this. And we live in glad submission to God as revealed through his word, which we hold as an authoritative regard over us. We see God's word as infallible, but ourselves as very capable of failing. Which means, like Paul says to Timothy, that our reprovals, our rebukes, and our exhortations must come with all patience and teaching. Which means what? Even as we have received grace from God in Christ, we must deal in grace to the flock that God has given us to lead. So let us forever submit to the authority of Scripture. Let it speak to us. Let it speak for us. Let it speak about us. And let its words change us by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us to conform us to the image of the Son who is the very Word of God from the beginning. Amen? Let's stand this morning. I'm going to invite Brian to come as we move into a time of communion and prayer. But let me pray for us this morning. Father, I want to thank you for Jesus when he, in the wilderness, being tempted by Satan, made a very clear authoritative statement for us that man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. The words that carry with it your very breath. God, we receive your word today. Not just as a religious text, not just as instruction for living a certain way, but we receive them today as if you yourself came and stood before us and delivered the words by your very mouth. God, in that attitude, let those words do a work inside of us. Let us receive the reprove and the rebuke and the exhortation from your word. And let us submit to the conforming work of the Holy Spirit, molding us and shaping us one word and one day at a time into the image of your Son, whom we worship today. In Jesus' name, amen.